Hi everyone, and welcome back. My name is Sejal Parikh, and I'm your host today. You're listening to Precision Bites, talking with patients about weight management, a podcast of simulated clinical encounters dealing with motivational interviewing and weight management in a variety of social contexts. Today, the provider will see Mr. Zhang, a 50-year-old Chinese-American male. He lives with his wife, two teenage children, and two parents. The provider has called Mr. Zhang back after his annual appointment to discuss the lab results, which showed a HbA1c in the pre-diabetic range. Before we start, we want to clarify a point. While we will attempt to offer suggestions and pointers for culturally competent care, this podcast episode is not an exhaustive resource. Despite our best attempts, I'm sure there are points we've missed and areas where we could have been more sensitive. Please use this podcast as an adjunct resource, supplementing other more comprehensive resources and your own experience with Asian American patients. Okay, so that being said, here are the things we want you to take away from this episode. One, how to assess the medical family history with ethnicity in mind. Two, how to introduce changes to diet without placing blame or offending family members. And three, how to offer culturally aware and appropriate food substitutions. Hope you enjoy! Part 1. Quietly Assenting Come in! Hi, Mr. Zhang. How are you doing today? Hi, Doc. I'm okay. Just between work and home. You know that Alex wants to get his ear pierced? He just told me today on the way to school. What do you do with them? (laughs) Yes. Well, raising teenagers, it's quite an adventure. Yes, yes, it really is. So, you wanted to talk about my lab results, Doctor. Yes. Uh, Yes, I did. So, the last time we saw each other was your annual physical exam. We did the labs we do every year. We checked your electrolytes, your blood, and your blood sugar, cholesterol levels. Up till now, all your blood test results have been normal. Okay. There is, however, a marker of your blood sugar control over the past three months called HbA1c. Like I said, in the past, it's been normal. Um, However, this year, it came back higher than normal. That marker of blood sugar shows that you're in the pre-diabetic range. Okay. While your HbA1c, or average blood sugar control over the past three months, shows that you're in the pre-diabetic range, you do not have diabetes. In fact, this pre-diabetes condition is reversible, especially with diet and exercise. Okay. Okay, so that was a lot of information. How do you feel about it? Okay, how can I get out of this? Get out of this? Sorry, what do you mean? How do we reverse this? Oh, well, diet and exercise are usually the best and most sustainable way to reverse the pre-diabetes. What do you think about that? Sure. Mr. Zhang, do you have any questions about this? No, just want to come up with a plan. Okay. And can you tell me what you know about prediabetes? Well, one of my uncles is diabetic. He was overweight for years, then he got diagnosed with diabetes. He started with taking some medicines, but then he needed to get those shots every day. Yeah, that can happen in diabetes, but that's not where you are. Prediabetes can be common in Asian populations at a lower weight than other ethnicities. That's something we know. So even if you're at something that's a normal weight for white or black ethnicities, your risk for prediabetes and diabetes is higher than theirs at the same weight. Okay, so I have to lose weight. Yes, I think that would help. I think you're doing a good job of taking care of yourself, but this is something we can make changes on to help you reverse this prediabetes. 
Okay, where do we start? Pearl 1, quietly assenting. In the opening part of the encounter, the provider shares the results of his annual labs with Mr. Zhang. Mr. Zhang reacts quite stoically when learning about his new pre-diabetic status. Remember, each patient reacts differently to new diagnostic information. If possible, try to be direct while also anticipating your patient's response. In this podcast series, our patients react differently. Some patients are more prone to guilt, and others are more prone to catastrophizing. Remember Mrs. Smith from the opioids episode? She tended to scapegoat. Mr. Brown from the doesn't know why episode tended to deny. Mr. Zeng is different from our previous patients. He is very stoic and therefore a difficult read. It can be hard to anticipate how to best support stoic patients. One qualitative study video recorded and extensively analyzed interactions between 38 patients and nurses. This study categorizes patients into seven different groups. These groups are the quietly assenting, the emotionally expressive, the storyteller, the stoic observer, the inquisitive of detail, dominant, and the critical self-observer. This study provides helpful details about the nonverbal communication, manner of participation, assertiveness, and other aspects of communication for each of these types of patients. According to the study, Mr. Zhang falls more accurately into the quietly assenting category. Quiet assenters are likely to bring up issues related to the health concern, offer short paraphrasing summaries as feedback, and show isolated attempts of assertiveness. Knowing this about Mr. Zhang can help the provider plan the rest of the conversation. For example, the provider can plan to give Mr. Zhang multiple opportunities for feedback. The provider can also offer Mr. Zhang with a menu of possible changes when creating the plan, so Mr. Zhang has ample options to choose from. We also want to review some basic weight-related epidemiology of Asian and Asian American populations. You will undoubtedly see at least a handful of Asian or Asian American patients in your practice. In fact, the Asian population grew by 46% from 2000 to 2010. Within Asian Americans, the biggest subpopulations include Chinese Americans with 3.3 million residents in the U.S. and Filipino Americans with 3.2 million residents in the U.S. in 2013. In terms of weight, second generations from immigrant families tend to be heavier than first-generation immigrants. This trend is typical for most immigrants, irrespective of origin. However, even at the same BMI, patients with different ethnic backgrounds experience different risks of disease. In fact, the risk of developing type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease is so great in Asian populations that the public health measures had to be reinterpreted to be tailored to these populations. A WHO expert panel in 2002 suggested adding public health action points to appropriately risk stratify Asian populations. Specifically, this study found that between a BMI of 18.5 to 23, Asians were at a low to moderate risk of developing type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Between a BMI of 23 to 27.5, Asians were at a moderate to high risk. At a BMI of greater than 27.5, Asians were at a high to very high risk. Those cutoffs are different than the traditional cutoffs of 25, 30, and 35 BMI points that are widely publicized. In recent years, more epidemiology and risk research has been done on Asian subpopulations. According to the National Health Interview Survey, or NHIS, in 1997 to 2005, 
38.2% and 8.8% of Chinese Americans were overweight and obese, respectively. Overweight and obesity rates amongst Chinese Americans living in Hawaii were dramatically higher. This study used the WHO Public Health Action Points to determine overweight and obesity rates. The NHIS also found that 2.2% of normal weight Chinese Americans were diabetic, 3.8% of overweight Chinese Americans were diabetic, and 11.2% of obese Chinese Americans were diabetic. Again, there was an uptick in diabetes rates amongst Chinese Americans living in Hawaii. Filipino Americans were also studied in the NHIS. This study found that 46.5% of Filipinos were overweight, and 28.8% were obese. When considering chronic weight-related diseases, Filipinos are outliers when compared to other Asian subpopulations. 5.9% of normal weight Filipinos, 3.7% of overweight Filipinos, and 11.3% of obese Filipino Americans were diabetic. Korean Americans were not explicitly included in the NHIS. This group was included in the California Health Interview Survey, which also used the WHO Public Health Action Points to determine overweight and obese status. The California HIS study found that 38.4% and 7.5% of Korean Americans were overweight and obese respectively. However, epidemiological diabetes studies of Korean Americans were harder to find. There are only two easily available diabetes epidemiological studies available, but neither surveys more than 500 participants. The diabetes prevalence varies anywhere from 10 to 20% in these studies. While there are many more Asian American subgroups than mentioned here, there's not easily accessible generalizable data available on these subgroups. For example, only two larger cross-sectional studies have been conducted on Vietnamese populations, one in Santa Clara County, California, and another in Texas. Part 2. Unfamiliar Foods Okay. So before making a plan, I like to ask my patients about their current diet habits. Can I ask you about what you eat? Sure. Where do we start? Let's start at the beginning of the day. What do you eat for breakfast? Well, usually cereal and milk. Sometimes we have some Chinese breakfast foods like spiced stewed eggs or congee or something like that. But usually cereal and milk because that's what the kids like. Okay. What kind of cereal? Well, something Raisin Bran, something like that. I don't really remember. Okay, and what kind of milk? Anything else you drink with breakfast? I think 2% milk, and no, nothing else to drink with breakfast. Okay, and kanji? Sorry, what's that? Oh, sorry, it's a Chinese um, porridge type thing. Okay, and how much do you have at breakfast? This much or this much? Oh, maybe the first, just a small bowl. Okay. And what's the next thing you eat after that? Maybe a mid-morning snack? No, no snacks. My wife packs them for the kids, but I don't really like snacks. The next thing I eat is usually just lunch. Okay. And what do you usually have for lunch? Usually just leftovers from dinner. Could you give me some examples of what these leftovers are? Well, my mother usually makes something Chinese for dinner, so leftovers from those. What's usually for dinner? Well, my mother tries to make something we all like, but the kids like things that are so American. So she ends up making a little of everything. She usually makes noodles, something that we all like, especially the kids. There's always some vegetables and meats. Yesterday it was... Hmm, what was it yesterday? 
I think yesterday was just uh, Chinese vegetables and Kung Pao chicken. Chinese vegetables? Oh, we eat a lot of traditional Chinese vegetables. My parents are really used to them, and I like to keep the tradition alive. Okay. I'm just curious. Could you tell me about these vegetables? Oh, sure. It's just sometimes I don't know the English names of some of these things. But there are um, leeks. We have those. There's bitter melon, and the kids hate it. But my parents love it, and my wife likes it, so there's that. Lotus root and taro root and things like that. Okay, interesting. I haven't tried a lot of those. We'll have to. Uh, but tell me, are these mainly starchy vegetables like potatoes or more leafy like lettuce? Well, we eat both kinds, but the ones I mentioned are more starchy, I guess. Well, they have nutrients, so maybe more like carrots? Not just all like potatoes. Okay, I understand. And what starch do you usually have with lunch? Usually rice. White rice? Yeah, it's really common for us. Have you thought about switching to brown rice? No, not really. My parents really don't like it, so just sticking with white rice. Okay. So we were talking about lunch and rice, and you said you mainly take leftovers from dinner. And then we talked about what you usually have for dinner. But I wanted to get back to lunch. Anything to drink with your lunch? No, just water. And how much food would you say you have for lunch? Can you show me how big your containers usually are? Yeah, I usually take two to three containers just to keep the different types of food separate. I guess they're usually, hmm, this big? Yeah, yeah, that's probably right. Okay, so two or three of those for lunch. And are they usually full or half full or? Usually half full. Okay, so nothing to drink with lunch except water and about two to three of those size containers. And then what do you eat next? A mid-afternoon snack? Oh, not really. I might have a coffee occasionally in the afternoon, but not really anything else. Any cream or sugar in the coffee? Yeah, a couple sugars, but no cream. Okay. And if you have the coffee, what time would you have it? Usually around 3. And what's the time you eat after that? Just dinner. Okay, and we talked about some of the traditional foods you have at dinner. Is that typical for dinner? Well, on the weekends, we have more American foods. That's what we've managed to <clears throat> negotiate with the kids. So weekends is more pizza, pasta, eating out, you know, that kind of thing. Okay, got it. And when you're eating at home, anything to drink with your meal? No, just water. And how much do you estimate that you're eating? Is the plate this big or completely full, half full? Well, probably that big and full. It's really nice to have home-cooked meals. I really prefer that. Okay. And anything to eat between bed and dinner time? Any dessert? Yeah, I do have a little bit of a sweet tooth. So, yeah, we will all usually have dessert after dinner. The kids really like ice cream, and I do too. So, so ice cream after dinner. Okay. How much would you say? Probably two scoops for me. All right, and is this the last thing that you eat before bed? Yeah, that is the last thing. Okay, uh, so let me recap so we're both on the same page, okay? Okay. All right, so for breakfast, you usually have milk and cereal and occasionally some traditional breakfast foods like Chinese porridge. No mid-morning snacks, and then lunch is usually dinner leftovers from the night before, usually some starches like rice or noodles and some meat and vegetable dish. 
about two to three containers, all half full. Then some days you have a cup of coffee with some sugar and no cream in the afternoon. Dinner with traditional food on the weekdays and American foods on the weekends. And usually two scoops of ice cream for dessert. Does that sound right? Yes, that sounds right. Pearl 2. Unfamiliar Foods In this part of the encounter, the provider took a preliminary diet history, and it can be intimidating to take a diet history of ethnic foods. The provider was not familiar with the traditional Chinese foods and vegetables such as congee, bitter melon, and lotus root. If you find yourself in this situation, we recommend the following things. First, do not be afraid to admit that you're unfamiliar with the food. Your patients will appreciate your honesty. Second, try to understand the nutrient profile of the food. Does this food seem predominantly carbohydrate or protein-based? That's ultimately what you're trying to find out anyway. Use common terms like starchy or leafy to help patients explain the food. You can ask the flavor profiles such as sweet or savory to get a better grasp as well. If the patient is telling you about a prepared dish that you're unfamiliar with, ask about the ingredients or preparation method to get a better picture. Finally, ask about the portion that is eaten. This will help you recognize the health impact as well. So to summarize, when encountering unfamiliar foods, we recommend that you 1. Ask questions to help you understand the nutrient profile. 2. Assess the flavor profile. 3. If the food is prepared, ask about the ingredients and preparation method. And 4. Remember to ask about portion size. Now that we have a method for asking about unknown foods, we want to review the literature about the Chinese-American diet. Traditional Chinese food patterns focus on vegetables, fruits, meats, and grain, either rice or wheat. The nutrient profile of this diet is usually less in total fats, saturated fats, cholesterol, and calcium. One influential qualitative study about the diet of Chinese Americans was published in 2010. Researchers conducted in-depth interviews with 20 Chinese American families with school-aged children about food and Western influences. Resulting interviews were analyzed and the information about common consumption patterns was compiled. When asking about their typical breakfast foods, Participants responded that Western foods, such as breakfast cereal, were common, but half of families still ate traditional Chinese breakfast foods. These traditional foods included spiced stewed eggs, steamed buns, and porridge or congee. Parents and children often ate different foods for lunch. About two-thirds of parents packed dinner leftovers for lunch, while virtually all children ate Western food. The children's lunches were either brought from home or purchased out. Dinner was challenging for many families, as children and parents often preferred different foods. Parents typically enjoyed traditional Chinese foods including vegetables, meat or seafood, and starch such as rice, noodles, or steamed buns. When children resisted, some families tried by adding traditional Chinese foods that the kids liked, and other families supplemented with Western food. Parents had different rules for children refusing traditional food. Some said, you cannot refuse healthy food and other parents told their children that refusing food hurts the cook. Parents reported that children most frequently refused shiitake mushrooms, bitter melon, black agaris, bean soup, and cornmeal porridge. Hopefully this information provides some context for the encounter with Mr. Zhang. Part 3. Missing Food Groups Okay, thanks Mr. Zhang for telling me about your diet. 
I just had some follow-up questions about your diet and exercise. Sure. So I didn't hear you mention any fruits that you eat. When would you eat fruits in the day if you did? Oh, I don't really like fruits. None? Any ones you kind of, sort of like? <laughs> Maybe lychee, but not too many. Okay, how often do you have lychee? Well, since there was that health scare, not too many. Oh, yeah, the health scare in India? Yeah, I heard about it on the radio. I didn't really understand what was happening, but it seemed like the kids were dying after they ate the lychee. Yeah, it was pretty scary. From what I understand, the malnourished kids who ate lychee on an empty stomach had bad reactions to the lychee, and it caused some pretty serious consequences. But I don't think that lychee will cause any sort of problem like that for you. Okay. But still, it just seems so dangerous. Yeah, I agree. It is scary. While I don't think anything like that would happen to you, it is still scary for those parents. Okay, Mr. Zhang, I wanted to finish up some diet questions. What dairy do you have in the day? Well, the milk in the morning and the ice cream at night. Not too much more than that. Okay, and who usually shops for the groceries in your house? Probably my mother and my wife. But I usually do the Safeway run. My wife and mother will usually go to the Chinese store and farmer's markets. And who usually prepares the food? Usually my mother. Sometimes my wife on weekends, but usually my mother. Okay, and what about exercise? How much exercise would you say you get every week? Well, not too much. Not too much exercise. I've been thinking about joining an exercise club or something. Okay. Have you thought of going on walks after dinner? Is that a family tradition? No. No, not really. All right. And last question. Any alcohol intake? Oh, not really. Maybe a beer on the weekends, but that's it. One beer or two? How much would you say you'd have on the typical weekend? Oh, uh, probably around three. Okay, so around three beers on the weekend. Thanks, Mr. Zhang. Maybe we can start talking about some changes now? Pearl 3. Missing Food Groups In this part of the encounter, the provider focuses on the consumption of certain foods, such as fruits and dairy, and reviews Mr. Zhang's current exercise routine. One of the controversial aspects of that qualitative study of Chinese-American diets that we mentioned earlier was its approach to calcium. The traditional Chinese diet, on average, does not contain as much dairy as the standard American diet. Curiously, though, the traditional Chinese diet is not associated with higher rates of osteoporosis. In fact, American women were five times more likely to fracture their hips as compared to Chinese women in Beijing. In that study of Chinese diet, the authors suggested that the providers should strongly encourage their Chinese-American patients to consume more dairy to fulfill standard American dairy consumption goals. A response piece recommended that the providers suggest more calcium-fortified soy milk and calcium-set soy as, quote, calcium content of and fractional calcium absorption from these products is comparable to cow's milk, unquote. Another response piece argues that the hormones, animal protein, and fat content in dairy products can cause increase in cardiovascular disease and prostate cancer. We included this research because as providers, it's important for you to know what opinions are out there. We do not have specific recommendations for increasing calcium intake in the traditional Chinese diet. Next, the provider discusses Mr. Zhang's fruit preference and intake. Mr. Zhang mentions that he is worried about eating lychees. Lychee is a traditional Chinese fruit that has been cultivated for a millennium. 
It has thin but leathery skin and sweet, jelly-like meat. When unripe, this fruit was found to be the cause of deadly hypoglycemia and neurological symptoms for poor Indian children in 2015. Since 1995, physicians in India have noted the rise in fatal pediatric encephalopathy cases between mid-May to July during the lychee harvesting season. In 2017, a paper was published in The Lancet that showed high levels of toxins, hypoglycin, and MCPG in unripe lychees. These toxins cause severe metabolic derangements that manifest as encephalopathy. Children dying from this metabolic encephalopathy were six times more likely to have eaten the lychee fruit than the average child. Public health and educational campaigns were put in place in India in 2015 to prevent children from eating lychees on empty stomachs at night. Since the implementation of these measures, the death toll from encephalopathy in the lychee harvesting season has fallen from hundreds to below 50. As Mr. Zhang is an adult with well-developed glucose stores, he is unlikely to be affected by the toxin levels in the ripe lychee fruit. However, there is absolutely no benefit in pushing Mr. Zhang to eat lychee. He's already worried about it, and it does not provide any essential nutrients that cannot be found elsewhere. Finally, Mr. Zhang has complained about his teenage children and their food preferences a couple times now, so we wanted to address that. One study correlated Asian immigrant acculturation with their preference for the speed and taste of Western food. The Qualitative Chinese American Diet Study found that the children of immigrants were more likely to prefer Western food to Chinese foods. This often frustrated parents. However, they dealt with their picky eaters very differently. Another study of more than 700 parental responses to eating behavior surveys found that one-third of Chinese American parents have an indulgent parenting style. Another one-third of parents have an authoritarian parenting style. These parenting styles have significant implications for children's health. Children of indulgent parents were 15% more likely to be overweight and obese than expected, and 51% of obese children in this sample had parents with indulgent parenting styles. Children of authoritarian parents were 15% less overweight and obese than expected. While patients are unlikely to change their parenting styles, I hope this information is helpful for you to contextualize weight within the family dynamic. Part 4. Behavior Changes Okay, so let's talk about some changes to your diet and exercise that can help with your prediabetes. What do you think? Any changes that seem possible? Well, I guess I could sign up for that exercise club. Yeah, I think getting more exercise would be great. When do you think you have time to go to the gym? Well, I don't know. That's the thing. That's why I haven't signed up so far. I can't go in the morning because I have to drop off the kids to school. I can't go in the evening because I have to come home in time for dinner. And after dinner, I like to check in on the kids and my parents. So, I really don't know when I would go. Can I offer a suggestion? Sure. What if instead of getting the gym membership, you started exercising at home? I guess. I just thought the gym would be better. You know, more comprehensive. Sure, sure. Yes, a, a gym membership would be nice. But I think we should try to plan for changes that you think are easily doable in your everyday life, you know? What's the point of signing up for a gym membership if you only go once a month, right? Okay, but what should I do? Do you like running? I guess. It's okay. Well, when it comes to weight loss, it's important to do cardio. So that's jogging or brisk walking, preferably more than 20 minutes a day. Second, you can also do weight training at home. 
It's super easy to get a pair of weights from places like Costco or Walmart. Okay. And are you interested in using any of the phone apps to help you with this? What? Well, there are a lot of applications you can download on your phone to help you train in cardio or weightlifting. There's one I use called Couch to 5K. It's good. Uh, It trains you on how to run a 5K assuming you have no training. It's something you can consider. If you feel like running is hard on your knees, you can always jog or walk briskly. Just something that will work up a sweat. Okay, I will think about it. So I will plan to run in the morning before work and lift weights at the end of the day. Yeah, that sounds great. And uh, then we should talk about diet. Okay, what do you think, Doc? One thing I'd like to recommend is switching to brown rice from white rice. Brown rice is better for you because it retains a lot of the nutrients in the bran, or the brown part. Plus, the way it releases sugar in your body is a lot healthier than white rice. Releases sugar? What does that mean? While all foods have some sugar in them, the amount and speed with which they release the sugar can affect the HbA1c, long-term measure of blood sugar. Because you're in the pre-diabetic range, I think it would be really helpful to switch to brown rice. What do you think? Well, you know, you know, it's not that, it's not that I have any real issue with that. It's just that my mom's the one who does all the cooking, and I know she's not going to want to do this. Yeah, it can be a jolt if your mom has just cooked white rice before. But do you think explaining why you should eat it would be helpful? I don't know. Well, if it were me, I would try to tell her about some of the benefits and how they're important to reverse your prediabetes. What do you think? I don't know. I don't really want to scare her. Yeah, you could also say it's better for the kids, too. Yeah, I guess I could do that. Yeah, tell her that while growing children need food, they need a lot more vegetables. Another thing you can try is mixing the white rice with the brown rice. They cook at slightly different temperatures, so that's something you should read about, but there are some things. Okay, and what else, Doc? Another thing I wanted to talk to you about was dessert. I know you have a sweet tooth, and I don't want to take your ice cream away, but if we started doing some changes, like next week, maybe only do one scoop? I don't know. I'll see. What do you think is reasonable? I don't know, Doc, but I'll try it. Okay, great. Yes, definitely try it and let me know how it's going. And last thing I wanted to talk about was portion size. What? So portion size is the amount of food we consume in real life. That's different from serving size because serving size is a standard measurement of nutrients and other things. For example, a serving size of fruit is one medium apple. But if you only have one slice of apple, your portion is much smaller than your serving size. Okay, but what do I do? I think that it's possible where there's a relatively small amount of food in a larger box, it can feel like the portion is too small and that you need more food to feel full. I know all the foods have different tastes, but do you think you could try to pack the food in one box that is more full? I think just seeing a full lunchbox could help you eat less. Okay, I will try. Okay, sounds good. So how do you feel about those changes? Okay, good. I am going to start running at home, consider talking with my mom about white rice, and then I can plan on taking my lunch in a box. Okay, sounds good. How much weight do you think I'll lose doing these things? Well, I think you might lose a couple pounds, but it's important to know that this is an ongoing process. We're just starting with some small changes. 
Next time we check in, we'll see how these changes are going and then add a couple more changes after that. This process takes time and it's important to be consistent. That's why I recommend small changes that are feasible to do every day. Okay, I can do more, but if you feel like this is enough, then that's fine. When do I see you next, doctor? How about in a month? That won't be far enough in the future to repeat the blood test, but we can at least check in and see how things are going. Okay, great. And then I should see you back in four months to see how the HbA1c has changed. We would love to see it go down or improve. Okay, sounds good. Thanks. See you in a month. Of course. Have a great day, Mr. Zhang. Pearl 4. Behavior Changes in this part of the encounter, the provider discusses opportunities for change with Mr. Zhang, finalizes a plan, and gets buy-in for a follow-up appointment. The discussion begins with Mr. Zhang suggesting a gym membership. It's great that Mr. Zhang is involved and motivated in the discussion. The next step is for the provider to help optimize the plan. Asking Mr. Zhang how time at the gym will fit into his routine, Mr. Zhang realizes that it might not be so simple. Especially with children to pick up and drop off, making time to go to the gym can be difficult. So the provider recommends more at-home apps and exercises. It's important to be sensitive of the musculoskeletal issues when recommending cardio exercise. For example, running can be hard on the knees of older patients. Walking or jogging can decrease the impact and therefore make cardio exercise more feasible for older patients. Next, Mr. Zhang and the provider discuss changes to Mr. Zhang's diet. One popular recommendation for patients who enjoy Asian foods can include switching from white to brown rice. High intake of white rice has been associated with increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome. The scientific basis of this is the concept of glycemic index, or how a food affects a person's blood sugar. Glycemic index is a ratio of the blood sugar spike that a food causes in the average person's blood sugar after two hours, compared to the blood sugar spike caused by consuming pure glucose after two hours. There's some more math and controls involved, but you get the point, comparing food's effect on blood sugar to that of pure glucose. Sugar is released from foods once we eat it, but the rate and amount that it is released at can affect insulin resistance. One review paper states that increasing glycemic index of foods is inversely correlated with insulin sensitivity. Put another way, eating foods with a lower glycemic index for only four days can increase a person's insulin sensitivity. Increasing insulin sensitivity is one of the key goals when attempting to reverse prediabetes. So back to white and brown rice. The glycemic index of white rice is 63, while the glycemic index of brown rice is 50. The lower the glycemic index of a food, the better it is for patients with prediabetes. A tightly controlled study of a handful of Japanese men showed lower blood glucose and insulin level peaks after eating brown rice as compared to after eating white rice. A larger study of Japanese men compared the body weight and waist circumference of two initially similar groups. One group ate white rice in their normal meals, and another group ate brown rice in their normal meals for only eight weeks. This study found that brown rice eaters had significantly lower body weight and waist circumference after eight weeks than white rice eaters. While healthier, brown rice can be harder to sell to patients as the texture and taste is different than white rice. 
If your patient is hesitant to switch to brown rice for all meals, you could suggest that your patient switch to brown rice for just one meal a day or prepare a mix of brown and white rice. Another change that the provider discusses is portion size. Reducing the size of plates, bowls, and cups can make it easier for patients to cut down their portion size. That's why the provider recommended that Mr. Zhang take his lunch in one filled-up box instead of many smaller half-filled boxes. Satiety is in part psychological and has more to do with the mass and volume of food than necessarily caloric intake. Eating off of smaller plates or out of smaller boxes can make food appear larger and increase patient satiety after eating less. Moreover, patients are usually more amenable to negotiating portion size as opposed to cutting out food entirely. Well, I hope that felt realistic and was helpful for you. Let's recap some of the key points from this podcast. 1. Quietly assenting. Remember that patients have different types of communication styles. Knowing your patient's communication style will help you tailor the diagnostic and therapeutic discussion to that patient. Also, Asians are at higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease at lower BMIs, so remember the WHO BMI Public Health Action Points for Asian patients. 2. Unfamiliar foods. When discussing unfamiliar foods, ask the following questions. 1. Ask questions to help you understand the nutrient profile. 2. Assess the flavor profile. 3. If the food is prepared, ask about ingredients and preparation method. And 4. Ask about portion size. 3. Missing food groups. There are conflicting opinions about the need to increase dairy intake in the traditional Chinese diet. Know that calcium-enriched soy products offer similar cons- Know that calcium-enriched soy products that offer similar calcium absorption rates are available for Asian American patients. 4. Planning changes. Brown rice has a lower glycemic index than white rice and has been shown to decrease insulin resistance, weight, and waist circumference in patients that eat brown rice compared to white rice for only one meal a day for eight weeks. Remember to address portion size. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. This podcast was made possible by the support of the Area Health Education Centers of California, California Public Health Training Centers, Western Region Public Health Training Centers, and the Medical Scholars Fellowship by Stanford University School of Medicine. Thanks to Virginia Fox for her feedback, support, and advice. Thanks to Leah Slang and Edric Zhang for their superb acting.